Well, good morning on this uh, spectacular day, and uh, greetings to those joining us uh, at the 01 Highland Park and at uh, Crossroads. So, five or six years ago, I got a phone call in the middle of the night. These are seldom good phone calls, and so I was not surprised. When the person on the other end did not uh, identify themselves, they simply said, uh, Miss Lily would like to see you right now. Can you come? Miss Lily, uh, not her name, but Miss Lily, was uh, a 90-year-old widow in failing health, and so I assumed that minutes counted, and I said, I'll be right there. Uh, I, I expected to show up, be escorted into a room where some family members would be, and she would be uh, weak and in bed, and I would hold her hand, we'd read some scripture, I'd pray for her, I'd step away, and I would find out that sometime in the next hours or days she passed away. That's not at all what happened. So I need to stop and back up and say, I've said she's a 90-year-old widow in failing health, which would lead you to believe that she was perhaps frail. Uh, No one who met Miss Lily would ever use the word frail and Miss Lily in the same sentence. She was a very opinionated, very wealthy, uh, very spunky, uh, southern-born force of nature who was never not in charge if she was in the room. And uh, uh, I had first met her a few years earlier when her, uh, when her son, who was a friend of mine, brought her to an Easter service. And he called me a couple days later and he said, um, look, um, my mom is not at all interested in spiritual things. But she showed up at Easter, she enjoyed the service, and I would like you to reach out and talk to her. She's, she's not going to live forever. She needs God. She needs the Lord. She needs to be reconciled with God. And I've not gotten anywhere. Would you try and talk with her? So I get these requests from time to time, and, and they usually go very poorly. Uh, this was different. It was spectacularly worse than poorly. So... I stopped over to see her, and, and she knew exactly why I was there. And she shut down every effort, every early effort I made, just hinting that I was going to turn the conversation towards God, towards her soul, anything like that. If, if our conversations were a chess match, I was in checkmate in four moves, and she was smirking. And it was like, you know, okay, yeah, you win again. But then she invited us, uh, Sherry and I, she invited us to a dinner party, a dinner party, uh, as she said. And uh, there was another couple from the church, and Sherry and I, and then one of her friends, Carter. Uh, Carter was also an older widow. Uh, she called her Kata. She goes, Kata and I are going to have a dinner party. We'd like you to come. So we went, and, uh, and about halfway through the meal, I started trying to turn the conversation towards the Lord, and she said, she sort of harumphed. She goes, Michael, I declare, I may have had a crush on you since the moment I met you, but you are insufferable. Every time I drop my guard, you're like a Baptist evangelist. You just come charging in. She goes, you're not ruining my dinner party. Kata, do tell us more about that third husband of yours. We're so interested. And and I just started laughing. It's like, okay, yes, no, I, I, what, what can I do? So imagine my surprise when a couple weeks later she called uh, a, a little bit flustered and she says, I have, 
I have done something. What have I done? Oh my goodness, I'm out of my mind. I have done something. Get over here right now. I got to talk to you. So I went over, and what Miss Lily had done is uh, a, a woman, a physical therapist that had stopped in to, to attend to her, had shared the gospel, and she had made a decision for Christ. And she says to me, I prayed this prayer. I don't know. I think it took. Uh, did I do the right thing? Should I have done this? What do you think? And so I had a chance to talk with her and say, well, look, if you, if you, you know, repented, if you humbled yourself and you came before God and you said, yes, I am, I am, I am guilty and I need, I need help. I need a rescuer and I'm turning to Christ. I said, if you did that, that was a good thing to do, Miss Lily. And you have been born again and, and you have, you have received God. You're now a Christ follower. Well, over the next couple weeks, uh, I had conversations with her, and it was obvious that God was working in her life, and it was also obvious that she was failing. So then, the phone call, 2.15 in the morning. I get over there, and uh, the person that met me at the door, and there were, she had um, staff. So there was, I think there was a nurse, and there was, I think there was a hospice worker, and then there was just some of her, her attendants and maids and so there was a handful of people there I'm, i am uh, i am escorted in and she says uh, miss lily will receive you in the parlor i'm like okay i thought well maybe there's a hospital bed in the in the living room and that's where she is no we come around the corner and there she is uh in a dress sitting at a table and she's got a bunch of papers and she says uh michael so so thoughtful of you to stop by i hope you weren't busy and I'm sort of looking at her, and she says, I have decided that you will speak at my funeral. We have details to attend to. Do sit down. And I'm, I'm sort of looking at the other people that are there like, what, what am I missing? Like, uh, and they sort of look at me like, you know, hey, you know, you've met with her. You, you know she's in charge, so we called. So I sit down, and she said, uh, <clears throat> Michael, you need to tell these people that I'm in heaven. And you need to tell them that I'm in heaven, not because I was a nice person. She goes, you might find this surprising, but I have not always been a nice person. <laughs> oh, really? She says, you need to tell them that I'm in heaven because of Jesus. So what Miss Lily wanted to be sure I got right in her service was what we call the gospel. And the gospel is is present when you know where to look for it in so many places, and it is present in Psalm 103, and that's where we are focused today. So last week, we started this series. It was in Psalm 1, and I said this is an introduction to the Psalms, this book of 150, mostly prayers, and it's also a meditation on meditation. So it's a little little uh, excursus on how we are to meditate on Scripture. And by the way, I got a lot of emails and some calls about what I said about meditation, wanting more information, and so I posted that. It's in my Friday email. If you don't get that, you can, you can give me your email address. I'll send it out to you. But I, I gave some more information and resources on Christian meditation, which is not a relaxation technique. It's something different than that. <clears throat> but uh, I said this first psalm is sort of serves as a bridge between Scripture and prayer, and that that is how we use meditation, to sort of drive 
the truth of God's word deeper into our heart. And the book of Psalms is, of course, this collection of prayers God has given us to pray back to him. And also they're models of prayer. And if you're not uh, if you're not intimately acquainted with them, you might be surprised. The Psalms are not a bunch of religious vanilla platitudes. They are very real, very raw, sometimes shockingly so in what they say. But uh, we started last week in Psalm 1. Today we're in Psalm 103. You have heard it read. You have heard part of it sung. Uh, I, wanna, I want us to focus on verse 7, but let me start reading in verse 1. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. So the first thing to understand here is that Psalm 103 is not a prayer. <laughs> like Psalm 1, it is not a prayer. It is, in one sense, sort of a meditation. So David, King David, who wrote this in many of the other Psalms, King David is talking to himself. He is directing his heart. And he is saying, okay, heart, soul, okay, you need to think about these things. Right? You need, he is steering what, what is going on in his mind. This is, this is crazy talk today when we are expected to just follow our heart wherever it takes us. Our feelings are, are what is real and have to be validated at all costs. He's saying, no, no, I am going to steer my heart. I'm going to steer my mind. And I'm going to say, you need to think about, you need to meditate on who God is and the blessings and the benefits that come from God. We need a perspective of God. We need an eternal perspective. And so he's talking to himself. <clears throat> Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost beings. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Forget not his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns your love with compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like eagles. He is, he is building a case for his mind and his heart to think about, to be thankful, to be grateful to God to be in wonder of God. The Lord works right, uh, righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. And then this is where we get to the point I want to focus on. The Lord is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse us, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to to our iniquities. Now, here's what you might not know, but what many of the readers of this psalm at the time that King David wrote it uh, would have immediately clued in on. David is directing them to a passage in Exodus chapter 34. It's the second time Moses gets the Ten Commandments because he shatters the first uh, two tablets, and so he's getting them again. And, and this passage... Uh, this idea that the Lord is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in love, comes from Exodus 34, 6. So those who have memorized Exodus 34, 6, and many of the Jews would have memorized it, know what comes in Exodus 34, 7. <laughs> and Exodus 34, 7 says, but he will not, uh, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. 
Okay, so same verse, the Lord is slow, uh, the Lord is, is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And then it says, but he will not, he will not leave the guilty unpunished. That's Exodus 34. Psalm 103 is a quote from Exodus 34. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And then it says, he will not always accuse, he will not harbor his anger, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our deeds. So, which is it? (laughs) On the one hand, he says, the Lord is slow uh, slow to anger, compassionate, gracious, and but he's going to hold us accountable for our sins. And the other one says, the Lord is slow to anger, compassionate, gracious, and we are not going to be held accountable for our sins. Which is it? How, how, how do we reconcile these two things? Well, the answer is <laughs> the gospel. <laughs> the, 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 the thing that you have to understand, the, the thing that we've gotta, we, the thing that's got to jump off the page for us is what Christ has done for us. So, what is the gospel? Uh, this is a term that is used uh, in a variety of ways. Some people use it in a very narrow context and sort of drill down to a few specific aspects of how we are reconciled with God. Other people use the gospel in a big, broad sense, and they, they, they want to sort of paint everything that you can associate with Jesus to the gospel. I, I am sympathetic to those that are in this camp because I think many of us try to limit Jesus to being our Savior. And that's sort of where it stops. And we, we miss this idea that he calls us to be the hands and feet of God. He calls us to love and serve others. He calls us to care for the poor. He calls us to be people who are advocating for justice. He calls us for all kinds of things that are, that are part of who Jesus is. And you can't, you can't cherry pick what you like. But, but I think that the word gospel, when we really press on it in the New Testament, refers to, to three things that sort of jump out. First, it's, it's the declaration that Jesus Christ is King and God and Lord and Savior and Jewish Messiah and our Rescuer. Second, that his death on the cross broke the back of evil and, and paid our moral debt. He was our substitute. And then third, that he offers us forgiveness and reconciliation to God. And and that offer is free. We don't do anything to earn it. Now, my experience is that many people who think they get the gospel don't get the gospel. As a matter of fact, uh, after 30 years as a pastor, I've come to generally be leery that if somebody identifies themselves as a Christian, until I hear them say a few things or articulate a few aspects, I, I sort of think they, they may not be. They may in the end, because we are so doggone religious in our orientation, they may say that it's all about Jesus, but they are living as if it's really at least partially about them. Like, I've got to be good. I've got to change. I've got to, say, I've got to do these things in order for God to love me. And so <clears throat> I get it because, again, we're religious. And plus, it's, it's crazy news 
Like it's, it's shockingly, scandalously unthinkable news. And we live in a world where, you know, there is no such thing as a free lunch. As a matter of fact, you don't always get what you pay for. You never get what you don't pay for. So the idea that this is free, that God has done everything that needs to be done for us, that, that just doesn't sort of resonate with the way life goes. So I want to I give you a handful of things that I think have got to be clear to you in order for you to say, yeah, I actually, I get the gospel. The first is grace. So uh, Paul will write in Ephesians 2, we are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result that anyone can boast. Paul will write the entire letter of Galatians, basically trying to hammer home at this idea as well. So grace, the, the old classic illustration is, if you're driving home today and you're speeding, justice means you get a ticket. If you're driving 37 and a 30, justice means you get a ticket. You, you have sinned, you got to pay for that. Mercy means the officer gives you a warning. Grace is when you have been speeding, the officer pulls you over, and he gives you a million dollars. And you say, that doesn't happen. Right, again, it's crazy talk. This is not our experience. We keep wanting to earn. But grace is this radical, unthinkable gift. We are saved by grace through faith. It is not a result of works. Nothing that we do. (laughs) Good things, bad things, going to church, being in a Bible study, working through feed my starving children. No, no, no. We are saved by grace. It is a gift of God. It is not a result of things that we do. We cannot boast about it. We cannot say we're better than anyone else. So the first thing we have to understand is grace. The second thing we have to understand is justification. So this is where Luther, uh, Martin Luther, uh, in, in the 16th century, and this is where the Wesley brothers sort of finally have the breakthrough. Uh, and just to be clear, so Luther was not only a pastor, the monk, he was a seminary professor, and he had a doctorate in theology. The Wesleys have been, they're, they're clergymen, and John has just come back from being a missionary, okay? And they still don't get it. And then they have their eureka moment, and they write about it. And, and for Luther, he is preparing, he had taught at the seminary in, in Wittenberg, Germany. He had taught, I was there a year ago to celebrate the 500th anniversary of Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door. He taught at the seminary in Wittenberg, Germany on the Psalms. And now he was assigned to teach on Romans. And so he's doing his prep work in Romans and he, he hates Romans 117, which talks about the righteousness of God. Because he says, I'm a, I'm a monk. I'm doing this. I, I spend hours each day in prayer and confession. I am doing everything I can to try and get better, and I am still not there. I am sinful. I know my own heart. It's dark. I cannot become the person I need to become. And his understanding is that we are, we are going to be, become good, and then we are justified. We are declared at, at the end of being good. We earn God's love and approval. And, and when he moves out of the Latin, which he had been using 
And it's, it's now the time of, of the Renaissance, and so everybody's going back to the original languages, and so all these biblical scholars now are going back to the Greek texts. He goes back to the Greek, and he realizes the word that has been translated out of the Greek into the Latin, it's the wrong Latin word. It's not a word to say that, that I become righteous. It's a word to say I am going to be declared righteous. I'm going to be treated as if I'm righteous. He comes to understand that we are saved, we are justified on the basis of an alien righteousness. It's not ours. It's Christ's. It is going to be Christ's good work is going to be credited to our account. It is a foreign goodness that we get. And that, when that happens, we are justified. Becoming a Christian is not like learning how to read. It's not like learning how to ride a bike. It's not something that you start and you get better and you get better until you're proficient. It is a, there, there is a moment at which our sin goes to Jesus, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, and we are declared righteous. We are adopted into the family, not on the basis of any good that we have done. Third thing you have to understand to understand that you get the gospel is it has to strike you as being fundamentally unfair. So about half of the, half of the, um, of the parables that Jesus tells are, are stories of things that are unfair. Matthew 20, this is where the servants get hired to go and work in the field. So at the beginning of the day, they hire, uh, this guy goes out, he says, I need, I need workers, and he says, okay, if you work for me all day, I will pay you this much. They go, great. They go out in the field. Halfway through the day, he sees some people that aren't working. He goes to them and he says, hey, you know what? Uh, if you're free, if you'll work for me this afternoon, we'll settle up at the end of the day. They go, great. They go out in the field. Then there's, there's like an hour to go. He sees some more people. He goes, hey, go out in the field and we'll settle up at the end of the day. And uh, then at the end of the day, he takes the people that have worked an hour and he pays them the rate that he had promised the people that were going to work all day. And the people that are going to work all day are like, oh, this is great. We thought we were going to get paid that for the day. We're going to get paid that for the hour. We're going to make eight times that. But then when it comes to the people that worked half a day, he pays them the same rate. And then when it comes to the people who had worked all day, he pays them all the same rate. And they say, what? This isn't fair. You paid them who only worked an hour the same that you're paying us. We worked eight hours. We worked through the heat of the day. And what does is, what is Jesus say? Right. It's not fair. But I can be generous with who I want to be generous with. This is a gift. The prodigal son is another example, although most people don't get the parable. The prodigal son, yeah, there's this young son, and he's a ne'er-do-well, and he takes all the money, and he spits in his dad's face and says, I wish you were dead. I'm going to take my money goes to another place, spends it all, loses it all, ends up in a pigsty, decides he'll go back home because at least he could work for his dad and get treated better than, he's, than he is there. So he goes back and his dad sees him and embraces him and welcomes him back in and throws a party. And everybody thinks, the story of the prodigal sons, we've got we to humble ourselves and turn around and go back to God. Yes, except that's only a, a small part of it. Yes, if you're a prodigal, <laughs> you need to go back to God. But the real gist of the story, because he's telling this to the Pharisees, is the older brother. And the older brother has never left. 
He's out working in the field. He comes in and he discovers that his dad has thrown a party for the younger son. The ne'er-do-well who, who frivolously lost half of the family's wealth. And he says, wait a minute. You never threw a party for me. I've been here the whole time. You never thrown a party for me. You throw a party for this bum? I can't believe it. And the father says, you were always here. You were always here. I've always, we've always had a relationship. My son was lost and now he's found. And the older brother says, no, I'm not going to play this game. And he won't come into the party. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, who think they're good, right? The winner in this story is the prodigal, who turns and says, you know what? I can't earn my way to God. So we've got to understand the, the gospel is unfair. And it's even more unfair than those parables and many others would suggest, because what happens at the essence of the Christian faith is the one innocent person suffers. <laughs> it's unfair. Jesus is the only one who doesn't sin. And yet he is going to become sin. It doesn't even say he takes on our sin. It says he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. People will sometimes say to me, you know, Mike, why doesn't God just forgive sin? Like, why does he make such a big deal? Like, you know, just, just forgive. Forget about it. Just forgive it. Be, be big enough to do that. Well, look, first of all, uh, you only say that when you're the guilty party. Like, if a judge in Chicago, there have been judges in Chicago that have done these things, that, that let somebody off. This person is guilty of stealing all this money or this guilty, person is guilty of murder or, or rape or whatever, but I'm going to let them go. I'm, gonna be, I'm just going to forget about it. No, you scream. You, you can't do that. Or you can't do that. But additionally, if, if, if there is a, an offense, somebody has to pay for it. So if you have me over for dinner and I break something in your house, break a lamp. I'm sorry. I say, I'm, I'll pay for the lamp. You go, no, no, no. It's an old lamp. We didn't like the lamp. We're going to get rid of the lamp, right? We'll, we'll go through that little dance. The, at the end of the day, somebody pays for the lamp. Somebody always has to pay. <laughs> and so God has arranged this unthinkably in that he, as the holy God, remains perfectly holy. All sin, Psalm 103, all, or Exodus 34, 7, all sin has to be accounted for. All debts have to be paid. But Jesus will pay that for us. And thus, our sins will be, there is an accounting for our sins. But he doesn't hold them against us if we're in Christ. So it's unfair. A, a, a fourth thing you need to understand about the gospel is that there's a sense in which it's fragile. Now, it's not fragile in the sense that God is strong and ultimately is going to prevail. And if you, if, you have, if you put your hand in his, he holds on to you. It's not that you hold on to him. I don't want to suggest that. It's fragile in this sense. Many people keep thinking that as much as we say it's all about Christ, there's a little bit that's about them. And if you think a little bit depends upon you, it ruins the whole thing. So... Um, I have, you've wondered, why is there this, uh, this Monet? I, I went to the Art Institute this, and borrowed this. So don't, don't tell them. But uh, 
So Monet's latest painting at auction went, uh, the bidding started at $45 million. It sold uh, at $81 million. So this is worth a lot of money. Uh, and there's a sense in which we could say this is, the, this is a finished work. But you know what? Um, I think I've got something to add to this finished work. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and, and uh, draw myself in here because... Uh, you know, I think that this makes it, this makes it even better. And uh, I'm going to put a big cross on my shirt to show how religious I am. And, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a hand coming up here that is going to point to God. And I just think there's just a little bit of me in the, in the Monet adds value to the painting. And you, of course, know, no, as a matter of fact, if you scribble on the Monet, then the Monet loses value. And if you, if you write yourself into the gospel, even just a little bit, right, it's not the gospel, and it loses value. So we are expected, please hear this, we are expected to, to become better. We are expected to serve, we're expected to love, we're expected to give, we're ex- all those things are expected, but they come on the other side. It's, it is not that Our faith and our works equal salvation. It's that faith equals salvation plus works. The works are a necessary part of the equation. They validate that the faith is real. James, in James, he says, faith without works is dead. It's not that the faith doesn't work. It's that real saving biblical faith always leads to a changed life. So the works are important, but we do not add to the gospel. We, are, we, do not, we don't need to add to the gospel. Everything that needs to be done for you to be right with God has been done by Christ. We don't need to add. We cannot add. Our works, our contributions do not. They don't carry us forward. They pull us down. And if we try to add, we get in trouble. Final point. The last thing you have to understand about the gospel, to realize that, that you understand the gospel is that you have to keep telling yourself the gospel over and over. Because we just try to start justifying ourselves, and, and this is, so Psalm 103 is, is David just forcing himself, right? Heart, mind, think about God and how gracious God is. He is the hero, not me. And, and the book of Galatians, as I mentioned, the book of Galatians is a book written by Paul to Christians, and it's all about the gospel. Because so many people treat the gospel like it's training wheels. The grace of God, the free gift of God extended to me is what I needed here when I was not a Christian. Now that I'm a Christian, it's different. No. We have to rest in the gospel every day, and when we rest in the gospel, it fundamentally changes everything. And so, Psalm 103... Is, is like so many other psalms. They, if we look at them carefully, we see they take us to Christ, who is the ultimate fulfillment, and who ends up on just about every page of the Old Testament. So we are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works. If you get the gospel, you are constantly reminding yourself that it's slipping away and that it's unthinkable. It's that good. It's unthinkable how good it is. We're going to go to communion now. Let me pray for us. And this is another, this is an event set up by God to bring us again to remind ourselves how dependent we are on Christ. Let me pray for us. 
Lord God, we, uh, we pause in amazement when we look again at your word and see how intricately it always ends up pointing back to Jesus and to, and to the work of Christ and to the gospel. And we thank you that you are a God who is slow to anger, abounding in love. We thank you that in Christ uh, our sins have been paid and we, we owe no debt because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Prepare our hearts now, Spirit of God, as we come to this table to be reminded, again, to focus on the death of Christ on the cross on our behalf. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.